милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. From the 1840s until 1917, prostitution was legally tolerated across the Russian Empire and subject to medical and legal regulation. Medical police compiled information, conducted routine medical exams, and monitored registered prostitutes' visibility and behavior in Russia's rapidly changing urban spaces. The vast majority of women who sold sex hailed from the lower classes, as did their managers and clients. As Siobhan Hearn details in her new book, Policing Prostitution, the world of sex work in late imperial Russia provides a window into not just sexual practices. It paints a picture of lower-class urban society and the state's attempts to police, surveil, and discipline it. The world of commercial sex was a contested one, as registered prostitutes, brothel madams, and others challenged local police, medical authorities, and reformists over the meanings of sex, labor, and morality. Siobhan Hearn is a historian of gender and sexuality in the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. She's currently the Lever Hulma Early Career Fellow in the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at Durham University. She's the author of Policing Prostitution, Regulating the Lower Classes in Late Imperial Russia, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Javon Hearn. Well, it's it's really nice to talk to you, and and again, congratulations for your book, uh, Policing Prostitution: Regulating the Lower Classes in Late Imperial Russia. Congratulations that it just came out. Um, but just to start, I'd like to have you introduce yourself. Sure. So my name is Siobhan Hearn, um, and I'm a historian of gender and sexuality in the Russian Empire and Soviet Union. So, so far, my work has focused broadly on the history of prostitution and venereal diseases from around the early 1900s until the collapse of the USSR in 1991. And I'm currently based at Durham University in the UK, where I'm working on a project um, about military masculinity in the late Russian Empire. Oh, excellent. Excellent. I look forward to that. Uh, so you do have this book, Policing Prostitution. I'm curious, what, what is the story you're, you're trying to tell with this book? You know, when most of us uh, you know, who are academically trained as historians, we focus so much on argument. But I'd like to know what is the story that you are you want readers to take away with? So this book is a social history of prostitution in these final decades of the Russian Empire before its collapse in 1917. And in terms of story, I'm focusing on prostitution to think about power dynamics at the state and street level in this period. So the story that I'm trying to tell mainly focuses on the actions of ordinary people. So here I'm defining this as non-elites, or as the title says, lower classes. And I'm thinking about how they experienced, participated in, or resisted the police and the prostitution, whether they sold sex, paid for it, were paid to police it, or managed it or lived alongside a brothel in this period. So just to give a little bit of context about the topic, prostitution was legally tolerated in the Russian Empire from the 1840s until after the February Revolution of 1917 under this system called regulation. Um, or Nadzor in Russian. So this system of regulation was implemented with the official aim of preventing the spread of venereal diseases, so infections like syphilis and gonorrhea. Under this system, women who worked as prostitutes had to register their details with their local police or a so-called medical police committee, which was a provincial organization whose job it was to police prostitution. And after doing this, they had to attend bi-weekly gynecological examinations. 
They also had to swap their internal passports, which were documents that they required to migrate or to obtain employment for a medical ticket, which was their main form of ID and upon which these medical examination results were stamped. And then if they were found to have a venereal infection, they were supposed to stop work and immediately um, go to the hospital for treatment. I'm, I'm curious because, you know, prostitution, you know, I know it's legalized and you talk a little bit about this. It's legalized in some countries and regulated and it's illegal in other countries. Um, why, what led the Russian government to take this path of, of a regulation and then focusing on trying to control venereal disease rather than, say, taking a more moralistic position vis-a-vis -vis prostitution? So the Russian system is actually based on other European systems of regulation that were in place in this period. So the Russians took inspiration from France, where a very similar system had been in place since the beginning of the 19th century. But throughout the late 19th and early 20th century, similar regulatory systems were in place in Great Britain, for example, with um, the Contagious Diseases Acts in the 1860s. Um, and also in various of the European nations, um, like the Netherlands, also um, in the Austrian monarchy and in North America um, too. So it's kind of like a international approach to managing prostitution that was really popular around the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Now, it is medical objectives officially, but it also had moral objectives. So the idea of regulating prostitution comes from the idea that prostitution is a necessary evil. So something that has to exist because heterosexual men need um, an outlet for desire. But if it has to exist, it has to be hidden and sort of sanitized in this way. So, for example, as well as following these restrictions in terms of swapping their IDs, um, having medical examinations regularly, registered prostitutes and also brothel madams and others working in the commercial sex industry had to abide by a whole host of other restrictions governing their movement, visibility and behaviour in urban space. So it's, yeah, it's moral and medical, I would say, at the same time. So, so what got you interested in this topic? How did you come to it? So there's two stories here, actually. Um, one is about being a moody teenager that loved Russian literature, <laughs> that became obsessed with Russian history from when I first studied it at school, age 16. And the other is about academic interest that developed during my undergraduate degree. So I found that when I was at uni studying history and English literature, I was drawn to modules about Russian and Soviet history, but also others about the history of gender and sexuality, as well as histories of crime and deviance. So I guess the history of prostitution is kind of at the meeting point of this sort of cluster of broader um, interests. And I actually started this project intending to do a comparative study of prostitution across the late imperial and early Soviet periods. So thinking more broadly about the impact of wars and revolutions on commercial sex in the Russian context. And in the UK, when you do a PhD, you have to apply with a project proposal, like a really fleshed out idea, very different to the US system, as far as I'm aware. Um, but then like I got to the archives and found that the richness of the material for the late imperial period wasn't really mirrored in the material from the 1920s. So for every 50 letters that I'd find penned by registered prostitutes, madams or urban residents in the early 1900s, I'd find one protocol penned by a representative of the early Soviet government on sort of state plans to eradicate commercial sex. So that unevenness meant that I decided to focus solely on the late imperial period for the book and then look at prostitution in Soviet history on the side um, a little bit later in a series of articles. Your period, the period of your book is is set at the, the fantasiacal period of Russia, the turn of the, the 20th century. It's a it's a dramatic, rich period. So much is changing uh, in terms of culture, politics, urbanization, economics, etc. We can go on and on, but it's an incredibly rapid change that has a profound impact on, on many aspects of imperial Russian life. So why don't you just talk about this, this scene, set the scene for us for, for your look into prostitution. Certainly. So the Russian Empire in the early 20th century, as you said, was a society in flux. Um, rapid industrialization from the 1880s onwards saw a real explosion in rural to urban migration. 
So millions of urban uh, rural dwellers left their homes in the countryside and went to provincial towns and cities for wage labour, settling either temporarily for part of the year or more permanently within urban space. And through this process, towns and cities swelled in size. So populations of major urban centres like St. Petersburg, Moscow, Riga and Warsaw doubled, tripled, even quadrupled between the 1860s and 1914. And as Russian subjects became more mobile, social identities also fluctuated. So the empire's social estate system classified non-elites, the people I'm interested in, in really simplistic terms as like peasants who lived in the countryside or townspeople who lived in urban centres. But in this fluctuating society, these categories were dismantled, negotiated and violated in this period of really phonetic change. And then with these changes, urban life transformed in this period. Literacy expanded across the empire's population, particularly among urban dwellers, and so too did the print media available for and also targeted at lower class people. The entertainment industry grew and grew, as cinemas, restaurants, taverns, public gardens sprung up across towns and cities in the empire. And the other side of the coin, rapid urbanisation also saw the increased visibility of various social problems, things like poverty, overcrowding, disease and prostitution. So as well as these broader processes that happen in this time, there were also really important changes happening with regards to prostitution. The number of registered prostitutes increased in tandem with industrial and urban development. So the number of women registered increased like two or even three times over in some towns and cities. Yeah, within the period of like two or three decades. And as these urban spaces kept growing and expanding outwards, brothels that had once been confined to the outskirts of towns and cities for the moral objectives, keeping prostitution invisible, were now situated within central districts in areas that were deemed quite problematic by um, urban residents. And these urban residents wrote to the authorities to complain about this increased visibility, of course. Uh, you know, the, the, the character of, or I think the character of, of um, urbanization too is really perhaps important here. Uh, and that is, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the late, a lot of the migration to the cities. I mean, it's, it can, it can be temporary migration between town and country, but increasingly permanent migration, but it's primarily men who are uh, migrating to urban centers to work in new industrial factory enterprises. So how does this impact, this concentration of men impact the growth and uh, of prostitution? Yeah, absolutely. I think an increase in demand is something really important to acknowledge here. Cities in the Russian Empire were real male arenas at the turn of the 20th century. So you're absolutely right. The majority of migrants were men. And even if they were married, they often wouldn't migrate with their partner or their wife. And if they did, the contrasting geographies of male and female labor in the city would mean that they would live apart. So these men would be renting beds in barracks, um, factory barracks, or they'd be living in a corner of an apartment um, or in an hotel, like very, very infrequently with a female partner or with a wife. And I think this separation um, and, you know, men sort of being on their own in the city is an incentive to open a brothel. It's an incentive to start um, start a commercial sex business because demand is rapidly rising as cities are growing in size and also as the, the ratio of um, women and men in cities is tipping much more um, towards the male side. In thinking about this in a comparative perspective, you know, in a lot of the, here I'm thinking in the American case, because it's uh, in the mid to late 19th century, it's increasingly a more of a frontier, like the frontier expansion westward um, settlement. You know, this also brings a prostitution along the way. Um, how how does the, the, you know, you mentioned that prostitution in, in, in Imperial Russia begins this regulatory model in the middle of the century. How, how does it, does, is there prostitution, do you know, also in these more settlement areas where people are, are, are moving out to periphery of the empire? I mean, I know you're dealing in many respects in the periphery because you're dealing with Baltic region, et cetera, but how does that funk, that issue of settlement, does that, is that a factor in the Russian empire as well? 
I think it is. So one example to look at here would be the development of the Trans-Siberian Railway. So as the railway develops um, in the final years of the 19th century and into the early 20th century, cities and towns that develop along the railway line become sort of subject to the gaze of the Tsarist authorities through the regulation system for the very first time. So prostitution definitely was in these um, cities and towns beforehand, but for the first time, it's deemed necessary to establish medical regulation and to um, establish posts specifically for police officers to come and um, formally police prostitution in this way. Um, so yeah, I think if you look along the railway line and you look at the, the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, you see for the very first time women being registered on the police list and you see correspondence between authorities in sort of um, frontier regions and unpopulated regions getting in touch with the centre for the first time to ask for resources, um, both financial and personnel, in order to police prostitution there for the very first time. I, I think, I mean, one of the things that, that I wanted you to talk about is the source material, because what's really fascinating, and it's just based on what you just said, is that prostitution becomes a means in which the state itself can regulate, monitor, surveil lower class populations. And, and, and what's, what's fascinating to me is the sources you have to that by way by way the state is able to do this so so police reports petitions petitions from prostitutes medical records etc cetera, etc cetera. So talk about these these sources you know give us a picture of of what kinds of sources you're working with and what type of materials do they contain so i um the sources that i'm working with in this project is predominantly letters so both correspondence between central and provincial authorities, correspondence between different provincial police forces, and then more, most importantly, I think, um, correspondence between Russian subjects and um, representatives of the Tsarist state. So my favourite sources is actually the petitions that you mentioned, letters sent by um, ordinary people, whether they be registered as prostitutes, whether they be managing brothels, um, whether they be clients, whether they be doctors, um, to the imperial state about the issue of prostitution. And I just loved spending hours and hours reading these letters, getting really distracted by various sagas unfolding on the pages and feeling like some kind of detective of being able to decipher the sort of scrawling and downright awful handwriting of some of some people who chose to write. Um, but if I could focus in on maybe just a few sources that I found in this project that were particularly significant. One important aspect for me is I'm really interested in how prostitution was conceptualized as labor in the early 20th century, because prostitution, I think, is a really important and neglected part of labor history. And plus, in contemporary perspective, this is something that sex workers today is still up against in struggles for workers' rights around the world. But I really enjoyed finding examples of registered prostitutes engaging in collective action. So I came across this fascinating letter from a group of 16 registered prostitutes in Brest, so now in Belarus, um, from 1908. And these women were writing to the police chief in the city to protest against a decision that he'd made to force them to work in brothels rather than out of their apartments, as they had been doing for the past few years. And we can speculate that this is to do with the visibility of prostitution, you know, easier to contain in a brothel, easier to police within one sort of central location. So this letter is just one of many examples that illustrates how the relationship between lower class people and the Russian imperial state was one of like constant negotiation and resistance. So in their letter, the women reminded the police chief that his actions were illegal in relation to fundamental laws, because they were, they were meant to be able to choose where they were allowed to work. And they used the knowledge of this regulation system opposed upon them to further their own aims. And they also engaged in this really skilled act of blackmailing, exploiting stereotypes about prostitutes, referencing their infectious potential. And letters of, like these allow us to shift focus away from top-down perspectives on prostitution and examine the more complicated and, I think, more interesting experiences of groups who are often quite neglected in historiography and especially in the history of labour. 
I'm actually really surprised. I mean, the more I think of it, maybe I'm not so surprised that in the 1920s, this source base dies out. Do you know why? I think it's because the the state structures that received petitions um, dissolved. And yeah, it's it's also to do with the early Soviet state's approach to prostitution, which on the surface was... Um, marked as the struggle with prostitution, not prostitutes. Um, women who engage in prostitution are victims of capitalism who can't be um, targeted by state policy. Um, rhetorically, this is what's being said, but then in practice, of course, the stigmatization of women engaged in prostitution stretches across the revolution and women continue to be picked up on other offenses. So um, the transmission of Venereal diseases was criminalized in 1922, and this law is used to target um, women engaged in prostitution throughout all of Soviet history. So I think, yeah, state the state approach has the impact on um, on the petitions. I guess when prostitution is regulated, at least it's an acknowledged part of of urban life. Whereas in the Soviet period, it's an attempt to to hide that it's still very much part of urban life. And what about uh, same-sex prostitution? So same-sex prostitution absolutely existed in late Imperial Russia. And obviously Dan Healy, um, Olga Petrie's work, um, documents this in incredibly rich detail. But it's not legally regulated, so it doesn't appear in the police files on prostitution. And instead appears in... um, Reports on bathhouses. I know that both um, these historians have found evidence of it there. Bathhouses seem to be this this um, locus of um, of male prostitution, same sex prostitution in this period. And female same sex prostitution is just something that I've not been able to find any evidence of in the prostitution files, but something that almost certainly existed. Um, but I guess it it's it's just much more difficult to find because it isn't subject to regulation and the imperial state to generate any profit from it so therefore it's it's more invisible in the archives yeah yeah i mean if you don't <clears throat> this is one of the difficulty with dealing with uh you know marginalized groups is that if they don't leave an archival footprint one is left to you know basically little information um so who were these prostitutes where did they come from what was their life like So according to statistical surveys, women who became registered as prostitutes predominantly hailed from the lower classes. So around 90% of women who were registered were identified by the authorities as peasants, lower class townswomen or soldiers' wives. Um, Almost three quarters were identified as ethnically Russian, Ukrainian or Belarusian, um, which is actually a much higher proportion um, than the overall share of these ethnicities in the population as a whole in the empire. Now, these statistical surveys are really interesting for painting this broad picture, but we do have to be really careful with using them to extract information about prostitutes in general, because the Tsarist police had absolutely no idea about how many women were engaged in prostitution across the empire, and they consistently struggled to um, know where they were, be able to monitor them. And there's only ever been two empire-wide prostitution surveys conducted, so one in 1889, one in 1909. And we don't really know about how this data was collected across the empire. But from the surveys, combined with looking at letters sent by women to the authorities and philanthropic literature, we can draw some broad conclusions. So most registered prostitutes had worked as domestic servants or needleworkers before their registration. both extremely low paid and unstable professions. We also know that some women worked as prostitutes long-term for years, others registered, deregistered, and then re-registered at different points in the year, like seasonal workers returning to the countryside, for example, during sowing and harvesting periods, or they did the same at different points throughout their working lives. And another generalization that we can make is most women who ended up on the police lists were migrant workers who engaged in prostitution outside their place of birth. Um, What about uh, children? Not as prostitutes, but as children of prostitutes. How did they, how was that issue dealt with? It's so difficult to find this kind of information. Um, But sometimes in letters from registered prostitutes, the authorities, they do mention the children. 
and they mention their children as a way of propelling the authorities to act um, to help alleviate some kind of um, difficulty that they're facing at that particular time, um, be it with regards to the, having the documentation they required to work legally. Um, a registered woman might mention a child and how they're supporting a child to propel the authorities into action. But we just don't really have enough information about how many how many registered prostitutes had children. It's just these snippets that we see in the archives um, that paint this broader picture of what life would have been like to support a child, but also to do this kind of work. And the men, I mean, we mentioned a little bit ago about, you know, labor migration, mostly male labor migration to urban spaces. But what can you say about the men who paid for sex? So men who paid for sex were much more elusive. So the czarist authorities didn't really care about them. They, Because regulation was founded on the premise that women's bodies needed surveillance for public health. Um, and registered women were held solely responsible for the medical consequences of paid sex, which more often than not was of a neuro disease. So we don't have the same sort of statistical surveys of clients about their ethnicities, occupations, ages. But from the evidence that we have, we can gauge that clients were most likely lower class male migrant workers in cities. So as we mentioned before, cities were male dominated in the early 20th century and a trip to the brothel was an affordable luxury and the number of brothels across cities in the Russian empire suggests that it's something that urban men did with a certain level of frequency. Now given that the authorities didn't really care about them we can only see them when they chose to make themselves visible or when they belonged to a specific controlled population. So for the first category in regulating prostitution the czarist authorities kind of set themselves up as service providers and clients lodge complaints with the authorities when they were dissatisfied with the service. So, for example, when they contracted a venereal infection, and that's something that regulation is supposed to prevent. So when it happens, it's a reason to write a letter and complain. And they also wrote to expose unregistered prostitutes, position themselves as protectors of patriarchal authority on the ground and performing a service for urban society to let the authorities know about women who were practicing prostitution without registering with the police. And the second category, so the control populations, the Zorus authorities cared very deeply about men in the military contracting venereal diseases, likely because poor military health had the ability to endanger the security of the empire. So unlike male urban clients, military personnel were subject to regular examinations, sometimes even with a similar frequency to registered prostitutes. And this kind of surveillance was also extended to other groups. So certain groups of urban workers would be examined for venereal diseases before returning home to the countryside in order to prevent the circulation of infection in rural space. I don't, I don't know if you can answer this. Uh, I remember from uh, Laura Engelstein's book from many years ago about sex in the late imperial period. Uh, I re I was looking into at the time I was looking into the issue of age and and youth and how it was categorized. And one of the discussions she has in that book is about the age of consent. Um, and and there's actually changes to the age of consent in this period. I can't remember if it was it was lowered or raised a couple of years from like 14 to 16, something like this. Did, was age of consent one of the issues? Like, was this an issue at all in terms of the regulation of prostitution? It absolutely was. So yeah, you're right. There is a shift in age of consent away from, I think it goes from 10 to 14, but they keep between 10 and 14 as an age of intermediary consent, where you have to, for example, in the case of rape, you have to prove that the child was completely innocent. And this is sort of a gray area between the ages of 12, 10 and um, 14. But with ten, in terms of prostitution, these discussions about consent really do reverberate within the world of commercial sex. So in 1901, the Ministry of Internal Affairs raises the, raises, sorry, the age of majority for brothel workers from 18 to 21. And the age of independent prostitutes um, called Adinchki from 16 to 18. So it really is, yeah, reflecting this shift in understanding about sexuality um, and sort of 
coming from the perspective of protecting women and girls, I guess. But a lot of the the um, increase in the age of majority is to do with concerns about white slavery that are circulating in this period. So white slavery is this term that was used in the early 20th century to describe forced prostitution or sex trafficking. Um, historians generally agree that it was a, a moral panic that was where the panic was disproportionate to reality. But this panic is in circulation in Russia as well. And it kind of starts off the rise of the abolitionist movement in Russia, which is a movement of um, philanthropists, jurists, doctors who want the regulation of prostitution to be completely abolished because they connect it to um, procurement, to sex trafficking. And they put a lot of pressure on the Tsarist government to reform the system. And one of these reforms is moving this age of majority. Talk about the world of sex work. You know, there's very different spaces in which sex work is performed, whether it's, you know, out of an individual's apartment or on the street or in a brothel. What was it like to, to be a sex worker in, in this period? So this world of prostitution is really rich and complicated in the late imperial period. Women who sold sex were divided into two groups. So you had those who worked in brothels and those who were called independents, who worked literally anywhere else. So tea houses, restaurants with separate rooms, um, also furnished rooms out of their apartments or in a railway station on the streets. So in some cities like St. Petersburg and Riga, the police alleged that there were brothels and other sort of informal sites of commercial sex. So those that had licenses from the police and illegal unregistered venues on pretty much every street in the city. So theoretically working as a registered prostitute also meant following a lot of rules. So you had the medical examinations that we talked about, which a woman would either undergo as a doctor's office if she was an independent prostitute at her own expense or would be performed within the brothel in which she worked and organised by the brothel madame. Then alongside the medical examinations, there were spatial restrictions um, upon where she was allowed to live and even appear within the city. Renting an apartment or even walking along certain streets of a city was forbidden for registered women. And where it was forbidden would depend on the city and the way in which the city authorities decided to approach regulation. Brothel keepers also had a really long list to follow in order to keep a list of rules, sorry, to follow in order to keep prostitution as hidden as possible. But looking at these rules and official documents produced by the Tsarist police only tells us one side of this very complicated story. It tips the scales in favour of officialdom who wanted to present an image of like orderly centralised control, of course, but this just isn't how regulation worked in practice and not how women would have experienced it. In reality, regulation was really messy and uneven. Registered prostitutes and brothel keepers regularly paid bribes to medical police patrolmen to bend the rules of regulation, all because they were blackmailed into doing so. And landlords rented apartments to registered prostitutes on these prohibited streets and even allowed brothel keepers to open up illegal brothels in their buildings, likely motivated by financial gain or just because they weren't as invested in this spatial segregation of prostitution as officialdom had hoped. The Tsarist police were also chronically understaffed and just didn't have the resources to implement ambitious policies like knowing and monitoring all women engaged in paid sex. And the disjointed nature of Russian imperial governments means that there's a huge variation in the severity of um, application of regulation from place to place. So just to give an example, in St. Petersburg and Riga, the medical police were really invested in conducting undercover surveillance to root out so-called clandestine prostitutes, so women who were working without registering, and register as many women as possible. Whereas in the city of Arkhangelsk in the north, the city police seemed to understand prostitution more as seasonal labour and allowed women to deregister en masse when the port freezed over in winter and the commercial activity of the city declined. So it really, really depends on where we're talking about. And I think it's really important to, to read against this kind of orderly, all-encompassing system that the Tsarist authorities invented and actually see how it worked in practice, which is much more messy and much more interesting. 
You know, there there has been a lot of work written on sex and sexual attitudes in this period, but also into the 1920s as well. What is what is your and looking at prostitution and and how it's conducted and regulated? What is your view of sexual attitudes and views towards sex at the time in Imperial Russia? I think the big takeaway point from my book would be that ordinary people were really engaged in these discourses that about sex, about health and about gender that are in circulation this period and are constantly shifting as society's in flux, as we mentioned earlier. And people are able to, whether they believed in these discourses or not, is very difficult to interrogate, but they're able to repeat things back to the authorities in order to achieve certain ends. So they're able to repeat sort of the aims of regulation um, back to the police in order to get a brothel moved off their street um, because it's noisy. Or they're able to talk about um, morality in the way that the Zorist authorities intended, sort of dividing up society into women who are debauched prostitutes and women who are honest. And they're able to use these discourses in order to get what they want. I think it teaches us that attitudes are constantly changing in this period, but also, yeah, that people are very aware of the shifts in discourse and how to use them to to achieve a personal aim. That's I would say they would be the main sort of takeaway points about attitudes towards sex and sexuality that we can get from these particular sources. And what talk about the role, I mean, in in the history of sexuality in general, uh, the medical profession plays a really outsized role in in the regulation, the identification, categorization, but also the normalization or normalization or de- definitions of deviance in terms of sex. So, talk about these medical, you know, police and others who were on this kind of front line and doing medical examinations and trying to prevent venereal disease, etc. What I found in in my sources is that. They really didn't like working for the regulation system. They found it very irritated because... Were they trained doctors by and large? Yeah. So every medical police committee would employ at least one doctor and some midwives to perform the medical examinations. But their work was horrible. They were examining hundreds and hundreds of people in a very, very short period of time. And they were paid pretty poorly as well. And the police constantly interfered in medical matters with absolutely no knowledge about um, the circulation of venereal infections. And they just always denied requests for additional funding. Um, Sorry, the central government, this is, always denied requests for additional funding that came from um, medical personnel that were involved in the regulation of prostitution. And also a lot of the criticism of regulation um, from clients, for example, is directed against doctors. And the czarist authorities seem to sort of go along with this because it's a way of deflecting responsibility, you know, looking for the one individual doctor that hasn't performed the correct examination, rather than thinking about how the crumbling medical infrastructure, the empire and the chronic underfunding is actually having an impact on wider public health and the transmission of venereal infections is just one um, facet of this broader health crisis. So yeah, they they don't seem very happy <laughs> in their jobs. <laughs> well, I would imagine. I mean, on the one hand, they're this weird in a minor intermediary where they can get easily blamed for a lot of stuff. But um, from my you know just kind of the bit of knowledge I know about medical professionals in this period, they also see themselves as reformers and tend to be more liberal and and trying to you know they're engaging in this medical practices to you know, improve society. Is there a, a certain, is that ideology current in these these medical professionals too? Yeah, like it's complicated in the medical profession. Some um, doctors really support regulation. They really believe that in the health benefits, but they think that the way in which it's run in the Russian empire is the problem. So they want, they want regulation, they want surveillance, but they want to be able to do it on their terms with more funding, but also a lot of doctors are involved in this abolitionist movement. So they really question whether regulation actually does prevent the spread of venereal diseases and whether it actually has an impact on public morality, um, a detrimental impact on public morality by the state sort of sanctioning engagement in extramarital sex. And many of them are very sympathetic towards the women engaged in commercial sex and sort of question why men aren't examined. 
and they do they're very much involved in this reform movement and this abolitionist movement yeah definitely i, I so so if you're if you're aboli- like one of these medical professionals who's uh, an advocate for abolition does that does that mean they advocate more like policing in terms of of you know you know because it's not going to get abolition as we know <laughs> doesn't get rid of prostitution all it does is it criminalizes it right like so it, how do they do they put forward an, an alternative model in dealing with prostitution that's realistic <laughs> well <laughs> from what maybe I realistic found, shouldn't be the, the word here but. <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> but what i found is it's it's a focus on abolishing the current system and then investing in healthcare. So it's less of putting forward a new um, legal model for prostitution and more focusing on um, investing in the medical infrastructure across the empire. But quite interestingly, um, in 1917, 1918, some into the early 1920s, you have crossover with people who you know, were opposing regulation before the collapse of the Russian Empire. And then they're involved in the sort of Central Medical Soviet in 1917. They're involved in draft and policy. And I actually find it quite interesting that many of them, very anti-regulation, but they really advocate for coercion in the treatment of venereal diseases, just not solely focused on women who engaged in um, prostitution, sort of expanding that surveillance across society. And lots of them advocate for criminalizing um, the transmission of venereal diseases. So it's it's interesting to think about the evolution of their ideas about how to how to solve the problem of widespread venereal diseases, and how it's not this very liberal idea of just invest in healthcare services. It, it develops into something quite different, which is which is really focused on coercion as well. When when a prostitute is arrested. Uh, for violating the myriad amount of regulations that are clearly put on top of them. What happens to them? So the arrest uh, um, of prostitutes for violating regulations is something that I really have not found a lot of evidence for, which again makes me think that it's more about over-legislating um, as a deterrent for an engagement in specific behaviour. I've found examples of women being fined for missing their medical examinations, but these fines are collected very intimately. And the fines are really small. Like, I think I found a case of a woman who'd missed maybe four to six months of medical examinations, and she was fined a ruble. It's it's not something that's done consistently. And again, I think this speaks to this gulf between state ambitions and the corresponding reality. Something which women are arrested for is for working as a prostitute without registering with the police. What would happen here? There's some examples in my book of um, raids, for example, that are performed in hotels late at night. The police burst in, they're looking for women who are engaged in extramarital sex. And then these women are invited to appear in front of the medical police committee and verbally defend themselves. If the police are unconvinced by their explanation, they're then invited to register as a prostitute. And this this procedure is meant to be voluntary because officially um, forced registration is, is not allowed. But there are many ways in exerting pressure. So usually this would mean the confiscation of a woman's internal passport and then her registration onto the police lists as a prostitute. And you have lots of examples of women writing letters really furiously um, condemning this practice and insisting that this decision be overturned. And sometimes it was. That's interesting. So you you have a lot of policing going on, but you don't necessarily have criminalization. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Hmm. I think so. Uh, And finally, you know, I would imagine that you're when you started studying late imperial Russian history and like we all do, um, your views on how you understand this period have changed dramatically thanks to the research you've done. So what, what is looking at prostitution tell you about the period in general? That's a great question. And I think there's two points that I'd like to focus on here. So I think the most interesting thing that prostitution can tell us is how complex reactions to sexuality, morality, um, and health were in late imperial Russia. So if we shift our focus away from these discussions that educated elites were happening or medical experts were having in this time, we can see that reactions to prostitution and the regulation system were really complex and diverse. 
So on the one hand, we had registered women going on strike to demand better working conditions. And then others write into the police to tell them that they were going to break the rules. And we also have women who were registered as prostitutes against their will and struggled to remove their names from the police lists. We also have urban residents writing these furious letters demanding that brothels be removed from their streets, whereas others are regarding brothel madams and registered prostitutes as desirable tenants with a regular stream of income. And this kind of complexity can surely be seen in any reactions to any social phenomenon. But it's rarely something that's acknowledged when we talk about something that's imbued with as much stigma as prostitution. And then secondly, um, I guess my book explores a more charted, well-charted avenue in Imperial Russian and India, so indeed Soviet history, by looking at this widening gulf between state ambitions and the corresponding reality. So, as I said earlier, the Tsarist police had no idea about how many women were selling sex, and they consistently struggled to impose control over mobile populations, of which women who sold sex were a really recognisable contingent. And they also grossly overestimated how far they could rely on ordinary people to help enforce their ambitious policies, and really overstated how far registered prostitutes were excluded from urban communities. And also the lives of policer and police were closely and even intimately intertwined, as police patrolmen relied on bribes, and they even were regular clients themselves. So I think obscuring this image of orderly centralised control, which is something people have been doing for decades, but prostitution gives us sort of a new way of looking at this, this gulf between the state ambitions and realities. The other thing I'd like to like to add too, and and this this not only for the imperial period, it stretches into the well into the Soviet period, if not covers the entire period, and that is you know when you look at these sources and these social behaviors and and the the history of on the ground, you really see how much you know agency these people are taking in the sense of demanding rights, writing letters, you know, complaining. Uh, you know, whatever it may be, it, it, you know, even though there's, there's been lots of books written on this, that it, it always continues to strike me just because our stereotypes of Imperial Russia and the Soviet Union make us believe that, you know, the, this population is passive. Absolutely. And I think it's so interesting as well, because illiteracy isn't a barrier to this sort of civic engagement. So there's a really well-established system of scribes, and often with the letters, I'll find, you know, a letter written in, written in Russian with then a signature in um, Latin script indicating that the person was a, a Latvian, Estonian, German speaker. Or you'll just see X's at the bottom, or someone else signing on the person's behalf, and then a little note saying that the petitioner is illiterate and this person has written this petition on their behalf. I think if we focus on the sort of big picture statistics about literacy in the Russian Empire, we get this idea that, I don't know, most of the population were in darkness, not engaging with the state in this way, but they absolutely were about things like sex, morality, about prostitution. They were able to write to the, their representatives of the state, and they did so in their hundreds and thousands. That was Siobhan Hearn. Siobhan Hearn is a historian of gender and sexuality in the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. She is currently a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow in the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at Durham University. She's the author of Policing Prostitution, Regulating the Lower Classes in Late Imperial Russia, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high well-borns and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.